Good afternoon. I'm Marianne Reese, host of Human Interest. Our programs are primarily conversational with the intent to, to share information that may lead to a more, or lead us to a more holistic awareness of, of the most serious and critical issues facing us today. So I thank you for joining, joining us today. In the studio is Becky Duval-Reese. We go back and forth, whether it's a second banana, our Ed McMahon, my sister, my helper, <laughs> my, my confidant, I could go on. And, and certainly, I want to thank our producer, Rob Rourke. Thank you, Rob. And our, our guest today, and we're very pleased to have Josephine, but she, she is Joe Snyder. And we're very happy that you're joining us, Joe. Thank you. Joe is, in my mind, and I think many, is clearly a Renaissance woman. She has wide interest and expertise in, in multiple areas, areas including American history, of course, and I would say the art of teaching. She's a, an expert quilter, seamstress, and she's a published author. And I'm, I'm sure, Joe, there's other areas that I don't know yet that uh, hopefully I will, because I'm always amazed at what you're able to do, what you have done, and continue to do. And by the way, I know these things about Joe, because Joe has been with lifelong learning here in San Marcos for seven years? 2016. 2016, so we're going on the eighth year. And she has taught all these things for us and been well-received and by all those that take her courses, but started out, I think the first one was the U.S. Constitution course. Genealogy. Genealogy, I forget. But the U.S. Constitution course just blew everyone away with your knowledge, and, and we took away so much. But she's also taught during COVID, even via Zoom, uh, a sewing class, and I have the blouse to show it. She's also <laughs> taught quilting. She organized and has facilitated four years now, American, Texas and American Lit book club that's ongoing. So I know about Jo and, and her expertise and abilities and, and thank her for all those things and sharing it with Lifelong Learning. But before joining Lifelong Learning, Jo retired from the Department of History at Texas State University here in San Marcos. And I would say rather than teach history as, as an accounting or a sequence of dates and events, what she did was use her quilting ability and she wove those events and dates into um, meaningful and compelling stories. So she really honed her skill as a storyteller. And she has received multiple rewards and recognitions from the university for having done that and that ability to present history to undergraduates, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is amazing. Freshman. So uh, again, she's bringing all that with her to lifelong learning and, and to this program. So thank you again, Joe, for, for joining us. But our, our focus today is primarily on her latest book, Claiming Sunday, the story of a Texas slave community. Uh, I have read it. Uh, and I want you to know more about it. And so my, my first question to you, Joe, is how and when did slavery, and specific, specifically slavery in Texas, become a research interest to you? Uh, actually, I got into the field of African-American studies, and slavery is, of course, in that same big, broad umbrella. Back in 1968, uh, the field was very new, 
Very few schools had black history programs or African-American studies programs. We certainly didn't. And I took a course in the summer uh, in my grad program with Dr. Emmy Craddock. Some of you may know oh, the yeah. name. She's yes. street named for her here in town. And one of the books she had us read <clears throat> was Kenneth Stamp's The Peculiar Institution. Um, and Kenneth Stamp was the dean of reconstruction <coughs> of history of the revisionist school of slavery. And I read the book and I never looked back. Uh, so I've been dealing with slavery in Texas and slavery in the South since that point in time. I did my thesis, uh, the first revisionist look at slavery in Texas in 1969, and um, um, I've stayed with the field all these years. So your master's thesis at the University of uh -huh. Texas was focused on that. What were, how did you research slavery? I mean, what... What was your process? Well, the process was to go bury yourself in the archives and to look at the documents uh, that slave owners left us. One thing about doing slave history, there were a few slaves, very notable ones, that uh, Frederick Douglass, first of all, comes to mind, that escaped from slavery and learned to write and to read and to express themselves. Nobody better than Douglass at that. <clears throat> and um, they're, they're so few in number. So to get at slavery, slaves weren't allowed to, to read their right. They weren't allowed to be educated. So you have to kind of look at history upside down, turn it on its head and look from the bottom up at the history and see what's in the white records that tells you about the slaves. And many slave owners were very, very good at uh, keeping very good records. And if you interpret that information from the viewpoint, from the vantage point of the enslaved, you get a whole different story. And that's kind of what I've done with Claiming Sunday and what I did with years and years ago, the first round. When you say look at the records, what kind of information did the slave owners keep on the slaves? Virtually everything, good, good slave owners, large plantation owners kept very detailed records. They kept receipts of everything they sold, of all of the bales of cotton that they harvested. The uh, Devereux records, which um, are the records that Claiming Sunday is based on, are nine vertical feet. Now that's nine feet of records <laughs> stacked up well over most of our heads. Um, and that's papers for the most part. There aren't big chunks of things that would account for that footage. That's just basically seven feet of papers plus some pictures on top of it. So you read through their daily diaries, their plantation field records, um, their bills of sale, uh, their letters to other people. Uh, most people in the 19th century kept copies of letters that they sent out to other people. So you read all those letters and you pull out of there one little bit of information that um, been busy lately, Peter ran away. Well, there's, there's something you didn't previously know about Peter and you plug that into your big giant picture. It's, it's a bit like hunting Easter eggs. There's always the nicest, biggest, prettiest ones, the one that's still out there to be found.
<laughs> but you take these little snippets of information out of white records and you start putting them together and little by little you build a picture of individuals within the slave community and the slave community as a whole. And the, the documents, did, the slaves didn't have last names or they took the last name of the owner or like you said, Peter, Peter hmm. Slaves did not have last names and that makes the research very difficult. Um, for example, I did my own uh, indexing on Claiming Sunday. I thought seriously about hiring a professional and then I realized that the whole thing was going to get dumped back in my lap regardless. There were three Marys. And unless you know the slave community very intimately, no one would have known as a professional indexer which of those Marys went on what pages. Um, and they, they didn't have last names. They picked last names part of the um, Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, and the Reconstruction period was to uh, record the slaves, record their marriages and their children. And so they asked them to pick last names. Uh, some of them picked Devereaux. I've, I've met some, some black Devereaux. Uh, most of them didn't. One of them who plays a vital role in the, the slave community is uh, Martin. Martin picked the last name of Freeney. And it's kind of a corruption of free man. You, you can hear Freeney huh. there, free man Freeney. Um, the uh, Henry family, the, mostly the, they all settled in California. Um, they picked Henry because Henry was the slave. His, that was his first name uh, that they traced their ancestry back to. So they picked Henry and it's the last name when they came out of slavery into emancipation in 1865. So you have to account for all of that as well in your puzzle. So, so what you're sharing with us is specific people that were in the Devereaux community uh, that, that Claiming Sunday really historically accounts for from the beginning mm -hmm. in other states. But we'll, we'll talk more specifically about Claiming study, uh, Sunday and the Devereaux family, but wanted to be sure people really understood the kind of data they kept. And I think you've uh -huh. certainly done a good job, like only first names. Didn't they keep how much, well, how many children they had, uh -huh. but what they paid for them, when they sold them, uh, how much they ate, when they were sick? Uh, Devereaux did and many other slave owners did as well. That fortunately for us, historians. But part of the reason that they did that was they were instructed to do that. There, uh, you, you first of all have to realize that slavery and the cotton that slaves produced drove the American economy, uh, if not the world economy, throughout the 19th century. The power and greatness of this country that was built through the 19th century was built on the backs of slaves producing cotton. Cotton was the first world traded commodity. Um, around the world and it, it fueled the mills of England and um, then and New England and so you've, you've got all of that. So there were people that wrote books on how to be good slave owners, how to run a plantation. One of the things, one of them was Hammond um, and his uh, Southern DuBose Review and um, he, he told slave owners, you write all this down, you keep these records, you record their birth dates, you record their names, you record their death dates, you record bills of sale, 
all of that. And and people like Devereaux, they were subscribed to Debo's Review. Uh, they so that's a magazine? It was a magazine. Oh. And it um, instructed him on how to be a slave owner, how to run a plantation. Uh, John Devereaux, Julian Devereaux's father, was um, a much better recorder of things than was Julian. And John has, uh, John Devereaux kept in the year of 1846, a very detailed daily diary that is just full of references to the slaves, of illnesses, of a, a disease, a summer flu that just ran through all of the slaves and who was sick, who was down, who was uh, better, who was not, who had relapsed, who had died, um, babies that were born, uh, those that didn't survive. Um, it's very detailed. And one record he even has when um, several slaves were born, the day they were born and whether it was morning or evening, wow. and deaths as well, and what they died from. And um, so that... And these, these records that you're sharing with us now were at the University of Texas? And they're all on mm -hmm. Texas? That family or other families owning slaves in Texas? Well, there's other records there of other families that own slaves in Texas. The Devereaux records are there as the Julian Sidney Devereaux records, and they are in the original papers. But there are many other slave owners in Texas whose records ended up in the Briscoe's uh, archives as well. Well, just specifically, were most of the slave holders and plantations in East Texas or? Yes, Texas geography does not lend itself to growing cotton west of about the 9800th meridian. Uh, it becomes semi-arid, increasingly toward desert as you move into the west. So Texas, the, the slave-owning and cotton-producing area of Texas was on a line that comes down from about Wichita Falls, just west of Austin, and goes right straight on down to the Texas, to Mexico. Everything to the east side of that was Texas in, the, in 1860. That put Austin right on the edge of the, what was the Comancheria, or the Comanche country. Um, and... The, the land that was to the east and the rainfall rate, you've got to have 30 inches plus for successful agriculture, and that was in East Texas. Did we have slaveholders in San Marcos? Oh, yes. Um, I still have people ask me and sometimes tell me that there was no slavery in San Marcos. A third of the population in Hayes County in 1850, uh, well, 1860, before uh, the year before the Civil War started, were um, of African American descent. They were um, Americans, black Americans, some of the mixed race Americans, but held as slaves, a third of the population. That's a pretty significant number, but that number holds for across the state of Texas. Overall, East Texas counties were as much as half or 60% in places. Wow. So all of this work and research, you, you had your master's thesis completed, and when did you start thinking about writing a book about all of this work and knowledge you've, you've gained? In 1990, I went back to UT to work on my doctorate, and um, I was in a course with the late Dr. Davis Bowman and, um, in, in the Old South, 
and I elected to do a research paper. So I went over to the archives and started prowling around. I actually wanted to write something on a pre-Civil War woman. And I was prowling around in the archives when I fell into the Devereaux records, and there was Sarah Ann Landrum Devereaux. She uh, ran the plantation after Julian's death in 1856. I'm going to keep that thought, and we'll get back to Sarah, but we need to take a quick break. Please stay with us. And you're listening to Human Interest here on KZSM.org, True Community Radio, San Marcos, Texas. And the views expressed on this show are those of the host, the guests, and not necessarily those of KZSM or SMTXCRA, the governing body. We're going to be right back after the station ID. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. Corny, groan-worthy but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. (laughs) So take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Get ready for a mind-blowing musical journey on uncharted frequencies. Join us as we dive deep into the dynamic world of San Marcos 78666. Musicians where sensational instrumentalists and mesmerizing musicians merge. Prepare to be captivated by their extraordinary talent and transported to a realm of rhythmic enchantment. Don't miss out on this electrifying expedition into the heart of musical genius. The Lifelong Learning Organization of San Marcos fosters pleasurable personal growth by offering a broad range of stimulating and engaging courses for self-fulfillment. Subjects range from courses in art, art appreciation, history, science, writing, literature, geography, and many more. Each course will be presented by members of the community who are rich in their subject knowledge and are excited to share what they know. Whatever your age, You'll find courses to fit your interests, and you'll interact virtually, well, at least for the time being, with instructors and fellow learners who share those interests. If you're interested in possibly becoming a presenter with lifelong learning, or you have ideas for topics to be offered, or you just want to find out more, please contact Marianne Reese at lifelonglearningsm at gmail.com, or you can call 512-216-6400. Thank you for coming back and staying with us. We're with Joe Snyder talking about her book, Claiming Sunday, the story of a Texas slave community. You were telling us about Sarah. Well, I I did write a paper on Sarah, and it was published in uh, 1994 in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly. and it's still in print. No, no historian ever got more mileage out of one article than I have out of that. But it is in Texas Vistas. It's in Texas Blue and Gray, largely because there's been so little written about plantation mistresses. Sarah ran the plantation after Julian's death until after the Civil War, pretty much on her own. But um, when I got into those records, uh, I, my focus was Sarah. But I knew from the get-go that the, the real story there was the story of that slave community. I just kept turning up papers and turning over papers and reading them and finding more and more and more information that would have lent itself to 
a slave community study. And so it, it was in the back of my mind as early as 1990. And I would, I, it was one of those things I was teaching. I had a family. Um, and I'd pull it forward on my desk, and I'd work on it for a few months or weeks. And then I, before I knew it, it would be at the back of the desk again. And then uh, six months later, I'd pull it forward and do a little more. But uh, I just knew instinctively that it, that was that was a story that needed to be told. And so when I retired in 2001, I, I was really interested in it, but I was having some health problems. So going to the archives was not the easiest thing in the world for me, and I got very lucky. And I, I owe credit to uh, a woman named Valerie Arnett, uh, who worked for LexisNexis. Uh, LexisNexis is a big international data institution. Yeah. They sell microfilm to big libraries like Texas State and University of Texas. They handle data all over the world, and they sell it to big companies, and they manage it for big companies. And so I knew buying a few rails of microfilm wasn't going to be easy. <clears throat> but I already had no. I mean, that's where I was sitting anyway. So I called, and I got this woman named Valerie Arnett. And I told her what I was doing, and I said, I'd, I'd really like to be able to purchase the re six reels of the microfilm of the years I was most interested in. And she told me what they did and exactly what I knew I was going to hear. But I asked. I said, thank you very much. I appreciate your information. And I hung up the phone. <clears throat> Three days later, the woman calls me back. And she said, I went in and talked to my supervisor, told him what you were doing. We were very impressed with the project you were working on. So we are sending you the microfilm that you requested, seven reels, as it turns out, of those Devereaux records gratis. So well, I have been fortunate enough to be able to go back through them time after time. And that's when you start seeing things you missed the first time or you missed the second time or even the third time. <clears throat> and I don't know how many times I've been back through some of that microfilm, but um, each time uh, something else crops up that I didn't recognize and didn't realize the significance of the first time I saw yeah. it. Well, one of the things that I, I, I think I was surprised when you see a story of the slave community, it's going to be a lot of brutality, and I'm thinking a lot of the movies and TV things, there's the... but. As you read the Devereaux, there's still slavery. I mean, it's slavery. But it was that family, that plantation, the Devereaux's, unique among slaveholders? I don't think they were unique. I think they were more the normal and the commonality. <clears throat> there were slaveholders that were brutal, that, were, that treated their slaves with, with absolute horror. Um, Julian Devereaux didn't. For, two reasons. One, he was basically a kind person. But you have to realize how valuable slaves were, how much money the South had invested in their slaves. Uh, to give you an, an example here, Julian Devereaux owned 10,500 acres of East Texas cotton-growing sandy soil, prime cotton country. 10,500 acres. Now, I'm not adding zeros. That's a lot of land. He owned 75 slaves. His 75 slaves were worth twice 
what all that land was worth. That gives you some idea of the relationship there of how valuable slaves were. So to mistreat your slaves and to be put them under brutal conditions and to not feed them um, was a, a, economically, if no, for not any reason, not the humane reasons, but just economically, that was not sensible because those were the people that made you rich. They were the people that ran that plantation that produced that cotton that gave those you those bales of cotton to send to New Orleans. So I think the Devereux plantation was more a common situation than it was the abnormal. And the other thing that I looked at trying to answer exactly that question, Julian Devereux was a justice of the peace. He was elected to come to Austin as a representative to the House of Representatives from Ruska County. He was well thought of in the community. Had he been doing things that were uh, not part of the normal um, slaveholder operations, I don't think he would have been as well thought of within his community. And I find evidence all over the South of slaveholders doing exactly the kinds of things that, that Devereux did. There were um, two or three slave runaways. I do not know what punishment was meted out. Uh, there are there's no record of punishment on the plantation uh, except for one, and it was recorded by John Devereux in 1846. And uh, the four slaves were whipped for being uppity, for not knowing their place. Now, I don't know what they said or did, but he did record that the slave owner had uh, the overseer had whipped four slaves was the only reference I found. Now I think there was more. There's bound to have been more, but it's not in the records, not in the Devereux records at any rate. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you say you think that, that they're more typical and you explained why. It, and that's what you're finding through the Texas research or do you think that was U.S. and that's kind what of a... I make that judgment based on 40 years of reading about slavery across the American South. That works for me. <laughs> it just fits into everything I have read year after year after year. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on the harsher aspects of slavery, but let us not forget, slavery is slavery. You're still losing control of your life. You're still losing the fruits of your labor. Your families are every day in jeopardy of being separated from you, even with a slave owner like Julian Devereaux. So uh, the horrors of the system aren't gone. Yeah. They may be mitigated a little bit by Julian of the owner's uh, kindnesses, but they're certainly not there, not missing. You mentioned the, the magazine that was, uh, what's the name of it? DeBose Review. DeBose Review mm -hmm. that, that was talking to or trying to train uh, slave owners. Um, did they include in there what was then a defense for slavery? Oh, yeah. Uh, increasingly, after the abolitionist movement in the 1830s uh, becomes really strong and starts ex exerting a, a tremendous amount of pressure on slavery, uh, the South developed this paternalistic 
uh, view of slavery that, oh, we're taking care of our slaves. You know, we feed them well. We take care of them from birth until death. And uh, <laughs> it's the wage slavery in the North that's, that's really what's abusive. Um, <clears throat> but the South, that was their, their defense of slavery. But also keep in mind, in just the scope here of, tech, of American history, in the 19th century, the South dominated American politics. Um, they, can, they owned so many slaves, they owned so much land, because of the two-thirds compromise in the Constitution, they got two-thirds of the slaves were counted as representation for southern states in Congress, so that at a much higher proportion of um, representation in the House of Representatives, they had for senators to be equal to their states, but those were senators of power. Um, and we're talking Calhoun and, and uh, Andrew Jackson and uh, James Monroe. Think about the first presidents of the United States. The only one that wasn't a Southerner was John Adams. And then you've got this run of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, James Madison. You've got to get all the way to, to uh, Van Buren to find another one that was not a Southerner. And so the South's dominance of politics and control of the country was really tremendous. It, it, uh, we think of the North with this industry and banks. That, that all is post-Civil War. Talk again about the, the compromise, the two-thirds. Just hit it one more time for us. Okay. The, the argument in the Constitutional Convention, which was probably the best chance America had to, to abolish slavery before the Civil War, um, broke down and its compromise on long north lines and south lines. The south wanted to protect slavery, the north wanted to abolish slavery. So there were several compromises. One of those compromises was that the Constitution would count, allow to be counted, two-thirds of the slave population in the American south in terms of representation in the House of Representatives. So that meant the South had greater representation in Congress because they could count two-thirds of those slaves. Now remember, those slaves weren't free, and they could not vote. They were property. But the Southern states got an increased representation in the House of Representatives that the North did not get because they didn't have that huge slave population. And that, um, that gave the South a, a bunch more power than the North. And they controlled, they controlled the politics. How many slaves did you say the South had, I mean, at, at the maximum? Uh, on the eve of the Civil War, it was a little over 4 million human beings. In the South? In the South. Compared to the North? Uh, the North had, had, there were no, no slave states north of the Mason-Dixon line by the time the Civil War came. It was all gone. There was a population of free blacks. It was not more than um, half a million at the max, and that would include some in the western frontier. Yeah. It's time for another break. The time is flying by, Joe. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll see you in a few minutes. 
And again, you are listening to Human Interest here on KZSM.org, KZSM, LPFM 104.1, San Marcos, Texas. Views expressed on the show are those of the hosts and the guests and not necessarily those of KZSM or SNTX CRA. We're going to be right back with you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was etched onto clay tablets, carved into stone, inscribed on parchment, forged into type, converted to bytes and bits and pixels. However the Word enters your consciousness, join us Tuesdays 4 to 6 for Bookmarked, all about books and reading in San Marcos and the world. Hazeinform.com is your gateway to information that you need about emergencies here in Hayes County. If you go to their website, that is Hazeinform.com, you will find all sorts of information from current alerts, upcoming events, and talking about safety here in our community. That is Hazeinformed.com. That is your connection, along with KZSM, LP, FM, 104.1. We are here to help in emergencies in the community. Go to hazeinformed.com to find out how you can be prepared. I'm Diesel D, co-host of KZSM Veterans Hour. Every week on Sundays at 11 a.m., join me and my trusty sidekick, Steady Steve, as we pontificate and navigate through various issues relating to those who have served and those who have served those who have served. From resources and history to our weekly Ask a Vet portion, we sit at the port front window and watch the world go by, and we chat about all things fun, funky, and entertaining. Join me, Diesel D, and Steady Steve every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Veterans Hour. We'll see you on the flip side. Hey, have you heard? KZSM now has a program in all in Spanish. The music in Spanish, all the commercials in Spanish, and the guy even recites poetry in Spanish. Yeah, that's me. I'm El Tío, and the program is called Musica con Ganas. Join me every Sunday evening at 8 p.m., on San Marcos' own true community radio, KZSM.org, now broadcasting on 104.1 FM. I have a question for you, Joe. Uh, <clears throat> we're talking about slavery in the United States and the South at, right before break. But I know in your book you have some really good information about the migration of, of slavery from the 1500s to the 1900s mm-hmm. and showing the slaves were predominantly not in in the United States, but where where were most of these people taken? Well, the numbers are around 12 to 14 million Africans taken out of the continent of Africa during the, when the slave trade was at its most active, and um, uh, uh, 12 to 15 million. Um, most of those were brought into South America and the West Indies, not into the United States proper. Only between 400,000 and 500,000. Approximately a half a million, maybe a little below, maybe a little above, but that's the round number, were brought into the United States. And yet, by the eve of the Civil War, the United States had 4 million 
slaves, four million human beings enslaved. Um, and, and here's the reason why. The, um, the West Indies sugar plantations ate up human beings, just literally worked them to death. Rarely a slave lived over 10 years because slaves were the cheap part of the equation. In the West Indies, it was land to grow the uh, sugar cane that was expensive. So that equation was cheap labor, high land cost. When you get to the United States, though, what we had in abundance was land. Maybe not labor, but we had land. So slaves became the cheap part of the equation, or excuse me, the land became massive, and then the slaves that were brought in were, were very valuable. Over in the West Indies, they just kept, kept importing them and bringing them in, and they were, they were much cheaper than the land. Over here, land was cheap. Slaves were expensive. And thus, America was the only slave, New World slave institution that propagated itself. Oh. Slaves that were brought into to the Americas, into North America, were predominantly 60% to 40% male to female ratio. In the West Indies, it was 90 to 10 wow. male to female. So families didn't develop. More women were brought in with, as slaves to America, so it fostered families Plus, the growth of the institution was important to slave owners here because slaves were so very costly. So the American slave system does replicate itself, and you don't find that with any other New World slave system, that that happened. Well, that brings me to uh, <clears throat> when I was asking you about your research, and I, I know microfish and all of the work that you did, but you also started going and meeting the Devereaux, the, the slaves, the, the children, the families of the Devereaux slaves. What, what did you learn from that, or who are they, or uh, how are they? Or? Well, they're a remarkable group of people, um, and I, I did make an effort to try and contact them. I, I wrote a, a very short paper about 2002 <laughs> for the uh, spring meeting of the East Texas Historical Association that was in Galveston that year. And I wasn't well, so I wrote it as a letter and sent it to the chair of the uh, committee, the panel they had put me on, and asked him to please read it. And at the very end of the letter, I had said that meeting some of the descendants would greatly enhance my work. Unbeknownst to me, there was a woman up in East Texas, she lives in Nacogdoches, her name is Jerry Mills, was a member of the East Texas Historical Association. She had begun to research her family. She and her husband, Adele, had just recently moved back from Atlanta to Texas, and she knew that she had ties around that area, as he did. And uh, she got this um, mailing from the East Texas Historical of their spring meeting, and here in it was this panel that talked about Tabby and Scott. <laughs> and she says, that's my family. That's the names I've been reading about. So they picked up her mother and Adele and drove them to Galveston, and Jerry went to this panel and heard my paper. Now... Miss Mills is, is 
she is a formidable woman. <laughs> the first time I met her, I was sure her, her ancestors back in Africa had been African queens. Because, because she is something, she is a woman that people notice when she walks in the room, heads turn. And um, so she's in the front row of this panel. And after the, pa the paper was read, she raised her hand. There was not another person, African-American color in that room. They were all white. And Jerry puts her hand up and says, I need that woman's information. That's my family. I'm one of those descendants. Well, wow. uh, I got three letters about what happened. The panel uh, went to stone-cold granite silence. Nobody <laughs> moved. And then there was a smattering of clapping and cheers, and a few people got up and walked out. But um, Paul told me she had called the house. I, I was in, uh, in New Mexico at the time, and two, days, two nights later, she called me. And that's one of my dearest friends in the whole world. We've been friends for 18 years now. But she called me in 2014 and said the Cadell family reunion is going to be here this next weekend. Before I even got off the phone, I was packing. <laughs> and so I took, um, I took my tape recorder, my computer, my camera, and this white face of mine and crashed an African-American family reunion in Deep <laughs> East Texas and had an absolutely wonderful time. People could not have been nicer and did five interviews then, added a few interviews a few years later before I published the book in 2018. And then before I did the second edition with TCU Press, I added five more interviews. So uh, I've gotten to know a number of the descendants. Um, one is a close dear friend in Washington, D.C. Uh, we know about each other's families. We talk to each other every few weeks. Um, we've never met each other. Well, I, I know in, in your the first edition and, and the second, you what you've really, so many things your book has accomplished. But one thing, you've given the Devereaux family their history back of their, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. It's, uh, you know, for those individuals alone, what you have done for them is immeasurable, really, I, I think. Every time I interviewed one of them, I, I would look at the person I was interviewing and listen to them, and I would think, how much do they, they look like Tabby, or how much do they <laughs> look like Henry? Uh, how much do they sound like them? Uh, and and I, always I kept wondering, uh, do I, is there somebody coming out here that, that I've read about, that I've studied, that, that was on that plantation? Uh, but they're very successful. Uh, they're stretched from the East Coast to the West Coast. Well, what I, you know, I, I know from talking with you over the process of your writing these books and the second edition, you know, you're, you're not outside, outside, you're inside this family with all your work. Mm -hmm. You know, and you talked about turning the records upside down, but you're also inside out or, you know, you're in there. Well, I, I know we're going to go to a break in just a minute, but I want to um, ask you about Dr. Michael Barnes and, uh, and what he has recommended. So we'll come back and talk about 
Dr. Michael Barnes, who's a columnist for the American Statesman here in Austin, Texas. Join us. And you are listening here on KCSM to Human Interest, and we're going to be right back after this uh, brief announcement. So remember, this uh, show is... Uh, the, the views expressed on this show are those of the hosts, the guests, and not necessarily those KZSM or SMTX CRA. We're going to be right back with you. Joe. Anybody out there interested in chess? Join us at the San Marcos Local Chess Club. We get together every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the San Marcos Public Library. All levels are welcomed. Everybody is welcomed. All ages are welcome. It's a really chilled environment just to enjoy and play some chess all together. Her voice can call up a ghost and soothe him to rest again, and she'll ease you out of the stress of your work week and right on into your weekend. She's got live and recorded music you want to hear and interviews with people you want to meet. Tune in Fridays, 8 to 10 p.m. for Friday Night with Care, right here on kzsm.org, San Marcos's true community radio station. Set your imagination free. Join local creator Karen Cross for a monthly open studio session at the Price Center from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on the second Wednesday of each month. Karen provides a friendly and happy space along with a variety of tips and techniques for creating by yourself or with others. She focuses on recycled materials and art journals. Bring a project in your supplies or just show up and plug in. Open studio sessions are free and open to all. Cash and art supplies donations, of course, are always welcome. The Price Center is located downtown at 222 West San Antonio Street. For more information, please call us at 512-392-2900. Join us at 11 a.m. on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month for two new half-hour back-to-back shows, Mothering Earth and Wonderful World. Mothering Earth, a show from Wimberley, features interviews with locals on important environmental issues in Hayes County. Mothering Earth will be followed by Wonderful World at 1130. On the second Tuesdays of Wonderful World, hear all about the San Marcos River Foundation from host Diane Wasinich and her guests. On the fourth Tuesdays, host Aspen Navarro and her guests will have news from the San Marcos Greenbelt Alliance. Celebrate our wonderful world with your true community radio station, KZSM. Before I break, I mentioned uh, Dr. Michael Barnes, uh, who's a columnist for the uh, Austin American Statesman paper, but he's also uh, the past chair of the American Theater Critics Association and a past Pulitzer Prize juror. Michael Barnes in December selected Claiming Sunday, the story of a Texas slave community by Josephine Snyder. Jolene. (laughs) Jolene. Jolene. (laughs) I keep saying that. Jolene, yes. Dolly Parton made me famous. (laughs) um, Thanks. I'm sorry for that, Joe. Uh, Anyway, Michael selected her book as one of the top ten books written by a Texas author as a a gift for the season, you know, that, uh, what an honor I thought that was. But I wanted to ask you, why do you think he selected your book? 
You know, and and it was number four on his list too. Okay, which really <laughs> surprised me. Uh, and but I think I know because I thanked my I sent Michael a note. Michael was raised in, in East Texas to a large extent, so was I. So we have sort of a email relationship back and forth now and then, um, comparing notes on our East Texas uh, West Texas upbringing. But I thanked him, and he said to me, your book stayed with me the whole year. I don't think he meant physically in his possession. <laughs> I think he meant the thoughts of my book and his reading of it stayed with him for that year. And I, I think that's why he put it in the list, was he kept thinking back to things that were in it, that he had read, that touched a nerve somehow. And as he read other things, um, he would think, oh, well, I remember something about this and claiming Sunday. So I, I think it was just that it hung in his memory and hung in his mind. And no author can ask for more than that. <laughs> well, I know when I look through and reread sections, and just as I was in preparing to talk with you now, is just about how you give the background of the slavery, where you know, how from Africa to Brazil, where the main flow was, or Arabia. Not the idea that all slaves were taken to North America. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, the background of data and that you supported that, it's, it's cited information. So your book is very, my opinion, your, your book is very readable. It's full of facts that are cited. That you, it's a reference text, but a, a good read. And uh, Becky, do you know the term, uh, I think it's called, pronounced idiolect, I-D-I-O-L-E-C-T, idiolect? The definition is it's a person's specific, unique way of speaking. Everyone has their very own idiolect that differs from the way other people talk. You're, I think people listening to you today get an idea that the story just flows out, the relationships, the, their humanity, their humans, not, you know, Martin and Deborah, you know, anyway. Yes, and the, the idea that, yeah. and your way you phrase things, you know, it's so comfortable, so real, so enjoyable, and that flows through the book, although it's full of, chock full of facts. Mm -hmm. But it's, um, anyway, I've, I've just found it just amazing, and I know um, a lot of people have. My editors called it my voice. Your voice, it, it, My yep. voice, it, it, that I have a voice That's in my That's idiolect. <laughs> yeah, my, my voice comes through in my writing. And it my, does. Michael commented on that, and um, when he did an article on it in, in February, this past February, he uh, he made reference to that 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 my, it wasn't dull. It was it was an, a good easy read. But I I've realized that I write like I taught, and good history is a story. Right. Uh, if you can get your students interested in the story, this is the best soap opera ever. <laughs> I have people ask me why I don't write fiction. Why would I want to write fiction when I've got this kind of truth to write about? Yeah. Um, but it, written well, good history is a story, and the people should come and be human. But one of the things I wanted to do in Claiming Sunday was to make these enslaved souls people. Right. I've read so much about slavery, 
and all of the numbers are there, all of the data is there, all the information is there, but I never had a feeling that these were real people. Yep. What kind of lives did they leave? What did they do day in and day out? Who were they kin to? How did their families interact? Who was kin to whom? That never came out. Right. Let me ask you one more question, and if we have time, a second. Why did you entitle your book Claiming Sunday? <laughs> it is based on a quote from one of the slaves. Um, Julian Devereaux was writing to his father, John, and he was ready to send the letter off, and um, he couldn't do it that day because, and he puts it in a footnote, I'm adding this footnote, because this won't go out until the next, uh, tomorrow, because he hit on a weekend, and he says to his father, Henry rather claims Sunday to attend to his own affairs. So Henry wouldn't leave with the letter on Sunday morning because Henry claimed Sunday to attend to his own affairs. And when I read that, that quote attributed to Henry, it, it, it just blew me away. Number one, who knew that slaves even had their own affairs? Number two, <laughs> who knew that they had enough nerve to tell their owner, no, I'm not going, this is my day. So I, that quote just sort of drove what I was doing. Um, Henry became very real to me. And um, there's the, the title, Claiming Sunday. The last thing I'll ask you, I read a quote about your book and says the, the book, Claiming Sunday, helps us view modern racial relations in a more enlightening and historically accurate manner. Slavery is ground zero for modern race relations. We cannot avoid that. Most people want to avoid it, and then they don't know anything about and cannot address modern race relations. You've got to go back to slavery and look at the issues, the attitudes that were formed about African Americans under slavery to bring that forward to the modern era, and, and, that, and that's just essential. Yeah. Okay. This is jumping ahead, but only about, I don't know, 12 hours or so. Um, tomorrow, Joe is going to be <laughs> our first presenter here in San Marcos at a presentation series that Lifelong Learning is putting on at the San Marcos Public Library. And she's our first presenter. Uh, they're going to be every Friday starting tomorrow through March 8th, which will end with mm -hmm. another one of yours. Mm -hmm. But we have a unique series going on with she, what Joe's going to talk about is really talking about the creation and early history of the U.S. Supreme Court tomorrow, 10 to 11.30 at the San Marcos Library. On uh, February, January the 12th, uh, Dr. Andrea Banzati, I mispronounce all sorts of names, but I hope, Andrew, if you're, <laughs> you're listening, but he's going to talk about the formation of terrestrial planets with the NASA James Webb Space Telescope. The following January 9th, how to communicate like C.S. Lewis. Uh, Dr. Stephen Beebe is going to be doing that presentation, who's a, a C.S. Lewis uh, scholar. February the 26th, Mark of the Hand Sculptural Exploration, Sarah Heimason is a visual artist and lecturer at Texas State. She's going to talk about her work. February 2nd, What Lies Beneath, 
Uh, the macroinvertebrates in the San Marcos River is going to be presented. And then the last one is celebrating Black History Month about, and Joe's going to be talking about Britt Johnson, the man and the myth. So Joe is a very busy, knowledgeable woman that we are so proud that she's with Lifelong Learning and Thank you're my you for friend. having me. Thank you. Thank you.